You're listening to the Adult Explore the Bible Weekly Leader Training Podcast. This podcast is designed to help teachers prepare to lead a Bible study group using LifeWay's Explore the Bible adult resources. Each week, we review the Bible passage for that week's study, examine some questions teachers may face, and give some teaching tips along the way. I'm Dwayne McCrary, your host, and also the leader for the Adult Explore the Bible group. Today, I'm joined by Mike Livingston, who's the content editor on the team, and we're going to be looking at session three for the fall 2020 study of Isaiah. Mike, thank you for being with us today. Thanks for having me. And we're going to be looking at Isaiah 7, uh, focusing on verses 7 through 17. Let me give some quick background so we understand where we are uh, in Isaiah's life at this point. There are two kings, Pekah and Rezin, who are in the background here. Pekah is the king of the northern kingdom, which is Israel, and then Rezin is the king of Aram. Um, They've joined forces to resist the growing power of the Assyrian Empire, which is to their northeast. Now, they've approached King Ahaz to ask him to join them in this this pursuit, in this defense, Um, but he refuses, most likely out of fear of retaliation from the Assyrians. That makes Pekah and Rezin very concerned. Because what could happen then is that while they're fighting uh, the Assyrians to the north, then to the south, Ahaz could then attack them. So now they're fighting on two different fronts. Uh, To avoid that, uh, they come together and they try to force the issue. And their plan is to invade Judah and take control of the country and its military resources. This threat terrifies King Ahaz. And so with that threat in the background, God sends Isaiah to Ahaz with a message. And that's what we're looking at here in Isaiah 7, 7 through 17. Let me just walk through, give you a quick outline and some key points here uh, for this passage. First of all, in verses 7 through uh, 9, we've entitled that particular section, God Intervenes. In that section, Isaiah confronts King Ahaz about his fear of an attack by Syria and Ephraim, which are Pekah and Rezin. He declared that the two perceived threats would soon be conquered and scattered. Isaiah urged Ahaz to trust God and his plan. In verses 10 through 13, we've entitled that particular section, God Expects. Here, God offered Ahaz an opportunity to see a sign from God. And that sign was that he was powerful enough to protect his people. Ahaz rejected the offer, demonstrating a lack of faith in God. Isaiah responds by by condemning Ahaz for his lack of faith. In verses 14 through 15 of chapter 7, there's an announcement from God, and that's what we've entitled this particular section is God Announces. Isaiah declares that God would provide a sign despite Ahaz's unbelief, and that sign was was that a virgin would give birth to a child and name that child Emmanuel. We're going to talk more about that in just a, a little bit. Mike. Uh, The name of the child would be a reminder of God's presence, bringing comfort to those who trust in God and destruction to those who fail to trust in God. Verses 16 and 17 conclude this section, and we've entitled that God Judges. In this section, Isaiah revealed to Ahaz that God would bring about a change in leadership because of the king's failure to trust God. So Mike, let's just think through three or four questions here. Uh, First of all, let's deal with this issue in verse 12. We've been told that we're not to test God, yet here it seems to be okay. How do we deal with that 
uh, contrast or that contradiction, I guess. Yeah, and, yeah, and, and apparent contradiction. You know, it, Jesus himself said, you know, when Satan tempted him, it is written, do not test the Lord your God. And uh, Jesus was quoting from Deuteronomy 6, 16 when he said that. Now, here in Isaiah 7, when uh, God told Ahaz, ask for a sign. And Ahaz re replied, I, I will not test the Lord. Well, th on the surface, that appears to be uh, you know, an, an honorable or, or upright response. He's basically, he's saying, it sounds like he's saying, who am I to put God to the test? You know, that sounds like a, like, like a good response, the right response. Sounds fair to me. I mean, that, that's, it sounds fair. Who yeah. am I to test God? And this is where context is important. And you, you, you gave it an overview of the context. Context is always important, but in, and it's really important here in, in understanding um, this, this particular issue we're discussing. God offered Ahaz an opportunity to, to see a sign that, that the Lord was willing and able to defeat Judah's enemies. You know, you've got, you've got Aram and, and Israel threatening to attack Judah, and, and Ahaz is, is afraid, and he sent Isaiah to say, Ahaz, it's not gonna happen. This is not gonna happen. Then he offers to give a sign of assurance that this is not going to happen. And you really think about that, that was a gracious act on God's part to offer a sign to Ahaz. And then Ahaz he, he didn't have He didn't have to offer a sign at no, all. No, he, he did not. So Ahaz responds with, I will not test the Lord. But the problem with Ahaz's response is that God told him to ask for a sign. So this wasn't an issue of Ahaz testing God. That, that's, that wasn't the issue. How is, how, how, is how is it testing God when God commands him to ask for a sign? See, you, you've got examples of, of testing God in other places of scripture. When Jesus was tempted, and I, I referenced, referenced this a second ago, when Jesus was tempted, the devil took him up on the, uh, to stand on the pinnacle of the temple and he said, if you're the son of God, throw yourself down, let God miraculously save your life. And Jesus said, it's, it's written, do not test the Lord your God. And in that context, to test God means you're trying to force God to act in a certain way. You know, you're trying to back God in, into a corner and, and force him to act in a, in a particular way. Um, that's, that's totally different than what we're talking about here with, with Ahaz. So you, in that sense, uh, you're putting yourself in the place of God. You're taking the authority, yeah. not him. Yeah. Yeah, or, or, you know, you, you, the Pharisees, you know, who, uh, Mark eight eleven, the Pharisees, it, it says the Pharisees to test him, Jesus, they asked him for a sign. To test him, they asked him for a sign. Well, their request for a sign was very different. It was motivated by, by an effort to discredit Jesus and to justify their unbelief. Um, so that's, those are different things. The issue with Ahaz was not testing God in the sense of trying to force God to act in a certain way. The issue with Ahaz was the issue of faith or lack of faith and obedience or disobedience. Because Ahaz had already made up his mind what he was going to do at this point. He had already chosen to put his trust in Assyria instead of his, trusting the Lord for, to, be, you know, to, to protect them, the Judah. So he didn't want a sign. He, he didn't want a sign because a sign would have forced him to admit his lack of trust in God, and it would have eliminated any, ex, any excuse 
for not believing God and trusting God. So a sign, in, a sign would have painted him into the corner. Yeah, yeah. So he, his mind was already made up. And that's why he refused to ask for a, for a sign. And it's in this context that God would provide a sign despite Ahaz's disbelief. God's going to provide a sign anyway. In verse 14, the Lord will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive, have a son, and name him Emmanuel. You brought up that verse there in 714. There's a lot of different questions around that verse. How did Isaiah understand this prophecy? Uh, is there one fulfillment or two? Uh, that, that, that comes from Matthew, uh, comments from Matthew uh, in chapter 1, verses uh, 22, 23, and the, uh, the birth of Christ. Um, how, how can we help our, under, our group understand this without getting bogged down? We, we, make, we make the statement in, I know it's in the, the personal study guide and the daily discipleship guide, it's, uh, that virtually all, every conservative evangelical scholar will affirm that Isaiah 714 refers to the birth of Jesus to the Virgin Mary. And, and we want to affirm that. We, we want to affirm that, yes, this does refer to the birth of Jesus. Now, not much question about that. Yeah, we're not, we are not questioning that. And I don't know of any conservative Bible scholar who, who does question that. But there are some scholars who would see a double fulfillment in this, in this promise. And, and meaning that there, were, there was a, a more immediate fulfillment of the prophecy in Ahaz's day. And then there was a future fulfillment uh, in, in Jesus, as Matthew recorded in his gospel. So the question is, it, does this prophecy refer only to Mary and Jesus and the virgin birth? Or could it have had more than one meaning or more than one fulfillment? And, how, and so the question is, how do we deal with this? Well, there's basically two options, two, two main options, as we've already identified. One is that this prophecy pertains only to Jesus. You know, and there are, many, there are arguments to, for that. And then there might be challenges, uh, you know, in saying that. The argument for saying it's only Jesus, Jesus and only Jesus, is... You know, this, this name, Emmanuel, Isaiah, just a couple chapters later in chapter 9, he, he talks about a child to be born. And this child to be born would be named, also named Mighty God, Eternal Father. His reign, he would reign on the throne of David forever. It would never end. So, and so, you know, you look at that, it makes a strong case for saying, well, the, the, the child in chapter 7, verse 14 must refer to Jesus and no one else but Jesus. So the, those prophecies in chapter nine would be a continuation of what's said here. Yeah, in a continuation seven. because he, he, he talks about a child to be born in, in chapter nine, just as he does in chapter seven. So we're making that, that connection there. He's still talking to Ahaz in chapter nine too, isn't he? Yeah, yeah, I okay. believe he yeah. is. So the, the challenge though, with saying it can only be Jesus is, is the context. If, if, if Isaiah 7, 14 refers only to Jesus, then we have to ask the question, how was that assigned to Ahaz? How would it have been assigned to Ahaz hundreds of years before the birth of Jesus? It would have given no immediate sign to Ahaz that God was going to take care of the crisis facing Judah and Ahaz at that time. So that leads some scholars to say, well, there, was a, there could have been a double fulfillment, an immediate fulfillment in the time of Ahaz, 
and then the greater the ultimate fulfillment, of course, in the birth of Jesus. And that double fulfillment would support the idea that Ahaz actually saw a sign, uh, as God promised. But then the question is, okay, who is this woman we're talking about then in, in the days of Ahaz? And who is this child? And, and some have, you know, there are different opinions. Some have suggested, well, it was Isaiah's wife and son, because Isaiah's, the birth of Isaiah's son is recorded in chapter 8, verses 1 through 4. But then the others say, well, it was, you know, we don't know who it was. It was some other woman in Israel. And some have said, well, it was a wife of Ahaz. Well, we want to be clear um, in all of this. We want to be clear that even in this double fulfillment view, you know, if there was an initial fulfillment in the days of Ahaz, we're not suggesting two miraculous births. And I, I want to be clear, you know, that we're not saying that well, there were two virgin births. That's not what we're saying. An initial fulfillment in the time of Ahaz would not have been the same kind of miraculous birth as in the case of the miraculous conception and birth of Jesus to the Virgin Mary. So a woman in Isaiah's day would have given birth by natural means to a boy who would have been only a sign or representation of God's presence with his people. Jesus, on the other hand, was born in a miraculous way to a virgin. He was literally Emmanuel, God with us in the flesh, God incarnate. You, the, go ahead. I, I, there, there's a, um, the writer of the Leader Guide commentary, Dr. Blake Harrison, makes a good point uh, about all of this. Uh, he said that instead of a double fulfillment being a reason for concern, you know, instead of us being, you know, really concerned about, you know, saying there was an earlier fulfillment, it should lead us, this double fulfillment idea could lead us to marvel even more at God's sovereignty, that God inspired this section of scripture knowing it would have layers of fulfillment and he would bring all these events to pass in their appointed times. So it points to the wisdom of God in that sense and the idea of him having a grand redemptive plan throughout history with pieces of it being revealed in multiple ways. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You brought up the idea of the word virgin here. Um, there's a word study option in the leader guide and, and it points to this idea how the word virgin is used in other places in scripture. There's eight, maybe nine times it's used in scripture. Help us think through that a little bit. Okay, the word, yeah, it's, I think it's used nine times. It's, it's not a word that's used a lot. Um, and uh, it's not limited to only one idea, meaning um, it, it doesn't always mean virgin. It, it can refer to a young, unmarried woman whose uh, marriageable age, it's, it's never used of a married woman, but it could be used of a young married woman who is eligible for a young unmarried woman who is eligible for marriage. Now, this would be the Hebrew word used in yeah, the Old Testament. Yeah, we're talking about, we're talking about the, this this Hebrew word in the Old Testament. So, yeah. let me give you let me give you some examples of how it's used. It's used of Rebecca in Genesis twenty four. It's used three times in that chapter. Twenty Genesis twenty four fourteen sixteen forty three. Uh, it's used of Rebecca. It's used in Exodus two eight of Miriam, the sister of baby Moses. It's used in Psalm 68:25 of the tambourine players in the temple. It's used in Proverbs 30, 19, 18 and 19, where the 
that those verses that talk about the three things are too wondrous for me that I can't understand. And one of those is the way of a man with a young woman. It's the same word. It's used in the Song of Solomon, uh, Song of Solomon 6, 8. To, it, it's it, there. It clearly refers to virgins as, you know, distinct from married women and, and concubines. So it's used in the Old Testament in different uh, ways uh, or in different places to refer to other women. Okay, so it's that's, back, you've got Genesis 24, Exodus uh, 2, two, eight, two, uh, two eight, and Psalms, then Psalm 68, 25, 25. Proverbs 13, 30. 19. Okay. Yeah. Uh, and then Song of, Song of Solomon. Solomon. 6, 8. Okay. Yeah, I think it's used also. I think it's used twice in Song of Solomon. Yeah, uh, chapter 1, verse 3, I three, think is the other yeah, one, right? Yeah. Something like that. Okay. yeah. So it does refer to young women in the Old Testament uh, with not necessarily uh, emphasizing their virginity. Now, when, when Matthew quotes Isaiah uh, 7, 14, he, he, of course, Matthew's writing in Greek. He uses a more precise Greek word, uh, the word parthenos, um, which, which means virgin. I mean, it's, he's, he's clearly understanding this in the sense of a virgin when he uses this word. So Matthew, without a doubt, understood Isaiah 7.14 to be a prophecy of the virgin birth of Christ. There's really no question about that. So he interpreted that Old Testament word in that context. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Uh, any other insights or key thoughts you would point out from this study of Isaiah 7? Yeah, you know, the, the lesson title is God Promises, and, and we don't want to miss um, that we, 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 where we're going in this lesson or where we can go in this lesson is straight to Jesus. I mean, we want to deal with the context of Isaiah 7, of course, but Jesus is the ultimate pr proof that God is faithful to keep his promises. So Jesus ultimately is the fulfillment of the promises we're talking about uh, in, here in, in chapter 7 of Isaiah. Uh, thank you for listening today. If you have any comments or questions, you're welcome to send me an email at dwayne.mccrary at lifeway.com. That's D-W-A-Y-N-E dot M-C-C. R-A-R-Y at Lifeway.com, and I'll do my best to answer your question, and if I don't know the answer, I promise to find the right person who can answer your question. Hope you join us next week as we look at session four. We're looking at Isaiah chapter 23 along the theme of God reigns.